Hello, everyone. I am Phil Svitek, joined alongside Marissa Serafini, and it's that time of the month to talk about books. And in this month, we are talking In Five Years by Rebecca Searle. 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 Um, names, you know, it's one of those things when you, like, whenever um, they say, don't make fun of someone who pronounces uh, a word wrong because it means they're a reader. So I'm going to use that as my excuse. But uh, anyway, we're here to talk about it. We love books. Um, so each month, Marissa and I get together uh, and talk about a book that we alternate on in terms of choices. Now, this is actually a book that I chose. Um, I don't know how it came to me, but it it, uh, it just looked like a fun fun read and and it came well regarded. I have not heard of the author before, but uh, quite well known at this point. And so, yeah, for me, it actually lives up to the hype, but I want to kick it off to you and, uh, you know, starting with just overall thoughts. Um, first of all, thank you for picking this book because I really enjoyed it. And I'm kind of like kicking myself that I was the one who chose this. So good on you. Uh, I did see this at a Barnes and Nobles one day. I was just passing through, you know, how it's like usually on one of those end cap things. I did see it. Um, I didn't like read through the synopsis, but I was like, oh, yeah. So when you mentioned it, I was like, oh, I've heard of this. Um, I really enjoyed this book. Not going to lie. I started it, only got it a couple chapters in. So I didn't like really get into the flow of it until like a couple of weeks later when I actually sat down and read it. And boy, did I zoom through it, man. And I was even texting you. I was like, I'm flying through this book. I cannot put it down. It was great. I loved it. It was emotional, um, easy to follow. It wasn't like all over the place, but you can understand how young people like you and I, I feel like it really caters to our youthful generation in that sense. So like always working, but still in that point of our life, figuring out where do I want to go in life? Do I want to get married? Do I want to settle down? Well, like it, it definitely caters to our current age right now, not to like timestamp the show in that sense, but I definitely felt all the emotional beats that this character was going through. And I really enjoyed it, especially at the end. We'll get to it, but man, did it hit me. It really yeah. hit me. Yes, indeed. So we're going to get into spoilers fairly soon. Um, so in that sense, you know, go read the book. We encourage you, obviously, um, you know, just the, let's start with the kind of a, the quick background, right? So Rebecca herself, um, she's, she's an author, right? Um, as well as a telev TV writer. Um, and she's co-developed TV shows like uh, Famous in Love. Um, and yeah, so her other books are One Italian Summer, The Dinner List, um, Truly Madly Famously, um, Famous in Love, uh, The Edge of Falling, uh, Where When You Were Mine, and then of course this, right? So even just by the titles, you can start to see a theme develop. Um, a lot of her books take place in, in New York, um, specifically, even though she now lives in Los Angeles. Um, she, she does have an affinity towards Manhattan and so forth. Um, and one of the things I appreciate, whenever a new book of hers comes out, she actually does um, book clubs. And you can actually request to, uh, to have her participate in your book club. Um, so I think that's a fun way to like promote the book as well as just, yeah, interact and so forth. Um, but yeah, what, what did you know about her going into it? Um, I, like I said, I didn't know anything beforehand, but. I didn't really know anything. Uh, I, I don't want to say that like I've heard of her because, you know, thousands, millions of authors out there, but I have heard of Famous in Love because of our previous network that you and I used to both manage and run. Um, we covered that, that show and we did the after show for it. So Famous in Love was like constantly in the back of my mind. I knew what the show was, but I didn't realize Rebecca Searle was a part of it and, and that was her creation. So good on her. After reading this book, I'm kind of interested in retroactively going back and watching the show. If it's anything about her writing and her storytelling, I'm actually interested. Yeah, I mean, the, the book is fairly short. It's um, 200, let's say 50 pages. 50 pages, yeah. Yeah, 250 so it's a quick read. And what I it also you could tell that she has a background in TV because it, it reads very visual and very fast paced um, and it maximizes is 
its effect. And in that way, for me, it was very much a, a page turner. And it sounds like it was like that for you. Correct. Absolutely. And you can do like this book I felt was written very cinematically, like you say, not to like steal your words, but like I can clearly delineate a first, second, third act in which, you know, a movie can take place. And this, I mean, you could go chapter by chapter. If you're going to break it up into a TV series, you can definitely be break it up in episodic forms when it comes to like character or stories or locations within the book. It's easily, um, there, there are a lot of points where you can stop and not miss anything and then zoom later. So, I mean, in any form that they want to put this out there, it's easy to tell. Yeah. And it's written in um, first person uh, from the main character of Danny. So while we get her internal thoughts and, you know, reactions to stuff going on, still it's through a very visceral sense um, in, in that way, as opposed to just these long monologues of flashbacks and flash forwards. It's, it's, it's in reaction to what's happening right there in front of her. Um, and I think, you know, an actor can certainly carry that um, without needing to spell it out through a voiceover or something like that. So um, I, I really appreciate it. And what it's about, um, here was the interesting part for me. The, the book is called In Five Years. And by chapter three, you get a flash forward called a premonition, if you want, mm-hmm. of like something that happens. And right then she essentially sp- wants to negate that from ever being a reality. Um, And it, the way it goes about it is in a completely unexpected way for me. I, you know what I mean? I I don't know if you like expected it to go in the direction that it did, but I certainly did not. No, definitely not. um, Because we see that trope a lot in movies or TV shows where like you think it's a, it's a vision, premonition, whatever. And then uh, you see the character do everything in their power for it to not come true and come to fruition. And I liked it because while we saw that very, very quick chapter of her flash, um, and then as you continue reading the book, me as a reader, I don't know about you, but when I kept reading, I was like, so how does this actually lead up to that moment? And that's what I appreciate in the storytelling of this. It was very linear. It's not like we were jumping back and forth going from here to the five years ahead, going back to present and whatnot. So I liked seeing the slow turnout, like whatever decision she was making was leading to the next. And it was easy in that way. It was easy to follow along and how we, the the reader got to where we were and who she meets in her life. Yeah, exactly. And, and what's interesting is like, she tries, the more she tries to make choices that veer off that path, the more it brings her towards that path. And that, that's what I appreciate. At any time, like something happened, um, it was so like specific in terms of the detail that you're like, ooh, oh no, this is bad, right? It didn't need to be spelled out. It's like they walk into this apartment and it's like, oh, that is the apartment that she saw in her vision. Oh no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Right, and exactly. And then like, and even up into the moment where she meets Aaron slash Greg, you're like, oh no, is there going to be a love triangle? Which we're so conditioned to, to expect between a best friend and you know the, the significant other. And then as a reader, I was like, oh no, what's going to happen here? Are they going to cheat? Who, whose heart's going to get broken? Um, so uh, as a reader, there was a lot of things that you think is going to happen, but ended up not happening. And I appreciated that because it kept me on my toes. And as very big consumers of media and books and storytelling in that way, like you would think it, it was predictable, but it really wasn't. And I appreciated that. Yeah. So reverse engineering it, um, it sets up the whole notion that her and David, they just got engaged. Things are going really well um, with her job and everything, supposedly. So happy life, happy wife, all that good stuff. Right. And so looking back on it, she doesn't end up with David. And um, in that sense, I don't want to talk about anyone else yet. Just like her relationship with David. Um, A, could you have foreseen that, um, you know, that he ultimately, like it was a, I don't know, not that they got married, but let's just call it a marriage of convenience. Yeah, definitely marriage of convenience, but also just like the marriage of expectancy, 
which mm-hmm. I feel a lot of people in their 30s were, were approaching that age where people are like, you've been with this person for so long, either, you know, not to make it all graphic shit or get off the pot, you know, it's like get married or get not or, or, or not. So and like she has been with David for so long, it just kind of makes sense. They're like, well, we should finally get married. Everyone knows we were in love, blah, blah, blah. Um, but when you keep reading and she keeps making all these excuses for the, the reason why they're not uh, getting married, like it's either work or best friend or all, all these X, Y, and Z factors. You're like, no, I don't really think your heart's in it if you if it's been prolonged this this long. And you're like, I don't think if you really wanted to get married, you would have done it by now. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly that is that is the argument. Um, part of me, because I related so well to Danny, I could see myself just postponing something like that. Um, for years on end of like, well, there, there seems to be this more important thing. Um, but I guess that is the lesson um, that, yeah, if, if you're putting it off so much, then, you know, you're really lying to yourself, ultimately. Right. And yeah, it would be frustrating for like a normal person, as I'd say, you know, who's making a quote unquote normal salary. And you make all the wedding plans, spend thousands of dollars and then it not happening. I think it'd be uh, upsetting, but, you know, because she was so financially well off, like spending thousands of dollars was like nothing to her. So she didn't really seem like all that upset that she put all this planning, all this money in for her to call it off. Well, really for David to call it off. And and, like, it didn't bother her all that much because I think deep down she knew that it wasn't going to happen anyways. Yeah. That part of the story to me was, uh, was the fantasy element of it, of like, oh, they're like 30 years old, able to afford all this stuff. I'm like, I know they got good right. jobs, but uh, New York's <laughs> expensive and all this stuff, you know, so all right, right we'll go with it. Manhattan, all that. And I'm like, okay, what, what's that like? <laughs> I was like, all right, that's where you kind of have to suspend your disbelief. But yeah, I, maybe that's just the bitter side of me that being in our 30s, not making that much like that much in in salary like oh okay she they're both well off they're well to do and even her best friend was well to do so uh like i think finances definitely wasn't a theme in this movie it just happened to help her move along the storyline so i mean it it was interesting like in the traditional sense it, it seemed like um danny and david were very much that upper middle class version and Bella, her best friend, was old school money. Yeah. You know, because like, I mean, if they're the only reference to like any finances is like, oh, Bella's really rich. It's like, well, OK, if she's rich by your definition, she must have a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of goes back to uh, like crazy rich Asians, you know, that how they they definitely um, explain how the, the new money versus the old money. And I like that. It didn't really bother me because it wasn't, again, it wasn't about finances or money. It was about the character relationships, which, you know, I enjoyed. Yeah. So let's talk about Bella. So Bella's her best friend. Um, She's set up fairly early on, um, right, where Bella knows about the engagement that's about to happen. She's excited, Um, which is interesting in hindsight, because maybe... Maybe it was a testing of the waters by Bella to see like how she was going to react to to it all, you know, because it's Bella who eventually says like, you've not really had love. Um, But either way, it uh, it creates a quite a dichotomy of of the two characters. Right. And it sets up that notion that ultimately Danny is this worry, some person over Bella and her lifestyle. And then by the end of the book, it flips. Right. And what I enjoyed about Bella is that they she felt like not quite the foil, but definitely the opposite of Danny in the best way. Where Danny's like very high strung, very organized and structured, planned out her life forever. And Bella's just like kind of the go with the flow, like, hey, if it happens, it happens. And here Bella's been in this long term relationship and is moving really slow. And Bella just gets into this new one and is really moving really fast. So you get these two different versions of a relationship 
And that's also fun to see when it comes to best friends and just how they are, but yet opposite in that way that still works. And uh, I I like that because Bella always questioned Danny, but not in the wrong way, but like really questioned Danny made her like rethink her life that a best friend should do. Yeah, absolutely. And um, certainly Danny, if anything was, that judgmental side of it of, you know, what are you doing with your life uh, and trying to push her. And that's, I mean, that's kind of the nice part about it is ultimately, you know, just in any sort of relationship, really, right. Be a romantic or in this case, friendship, you sort of need someone that is a, is a pull to your push. Yes, exactly. You need that, that friend who will challenge you and makes you question everything and makes you, um, just like push you along, whether it be mentally or physically in that sense, the, the one that keeps you going. And that's what Bella was. I like, I really enjoyed Bella. Yeah. And she was a, she was an artistic soul. Um, and you know, that was Danny's contribution was to essentially get her to open up the gallery to do the paintings. And, and I mean, in essence, um, if it wasn't for Danny, there really wouldn't be quite the legacy for Bella leaving behind, you know, through the cancer. Right. And if it wasn't for Bella, Danny would not have ever met Aaron slash Greg. So they, they both played a humongous part in their lives, whether they liked it or not. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about that because I mean, it, it, it felt like it was going to be a love triangle and you mentioned that, but it really wasn't, even though they do hook up. And when they did, I didn't know how I felt about it, but then it handled well, where it's like, okay, that's out of our system. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, and, and that's the thing. And that was the great thing about the establishment of the Aaron Danny relationship, because every time they meet, obviously they didn't start off on the wrong foot or they started off on the wrong foot. And then Aaron's like working every single time to like riff, win over Danny's affection because, you know, as a best friend, yeah, you know, knowing that, hey, the girl that you're dating, her best friend has to approve of you. Um, so I, I felt like it was that kind of um, acceptance in that way. And that's why Aaron was so determined for Danny to like him. Uh, and I, I like that because he he didn't force it. He, he like took the time and, and worked and worked with um, Danny. And every time they met, you can see that they had more and more things in common with each other. It's like, yeah, they're very compatible too. I, I'm for this relationship if it ever happens. So, and you, you see that a lot too. Like two best friends could be into the same person. Yeah, happens all the time, all the time. So that's why I was just conditioned to think, oh, is there a love triangle happening here? Yeah. And especially, I mean, towards the end when Bella's got her cancer and things like that, you know, part of me was wondering of like, bro, are you sticking around because of Danny or you actually are a good guy? <laughs> right. And I, I like how Danny questioned that because that's a fair question. Um, is, is it more so are you just here out of obligation or are you really just, uh, are you a good guy and really do want to see it through? And when he gave his answer, it's like, no, I'm in love with her. And it's only been like, what, at that point, four months? Like, yeah, you can fall in love with someone in four months. So, and because we know that he is a good guy, uh, like I believed him. I, I genuinely, truly believed he was there to to really help Bella out. I was like, all right, darn it. He's a good guy. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and ultimately, I mean, there's there's no villain necessarily in the whole thing, right? Like when David and her break up, he essentially tosses her out. But at the same time, I sort of, under, you know, you, you get it. And but you rightfully so. Rightfully yeah. so. Like, it, it's like he's been strung along for five years. And like, you know, so you get it. You're like, what, what the hell? And I've been nothing but supportive. Mm-hmm. Like, you know. Um, but, and I think what's, what's interesting about it is it took, it was Bella. But I think ultimately it was Aldridge who like pushed the final domino. Um, Ald- yeah. Aldridge being her mentor. Because in that environment, right, she's notorious for being so meticulous and detail-oriented with everything. And it seems like if there ever was a place that would value structure, it's 
mergers and acquisitions law firm 101, right? Um, in terms <laughs> of what she's doing. And yet, in order to find that, like, the pinnacle of, of that all, she needed to react on gut and instinct. Right. And I think that's also what makes a good lawyer, too. It's not, not it's not all about paperwork and details in that sense. It's also about knowing when to make the right decisions and, and when, when and where you make the right decisions. And also character reading and profiling people, if people's heart are part is in a decision or not and she can kind of see so that that whole meeting with those two founders of cutie um that that company she can tell one person was for it and one was not which was like a nice parallel to her relationship with david at that point david was in it and she was not and i think that like really pushed her just having that meeting really pushed her and made her self-reflect her like Oh, something, a big decisioning, a decision is happening. Um, but I feel two parties have to be a part of it for it to actually go through. And it, it like, it really opened uh, her eyes in that sense. Yeah. And, and, a, and in the long run, that's what allowed that trust to be there. And then, yeah, I mean, it's, it's what made her, allowed her to propel herself forward in her career was because of reacting on that instinct and knowing of like, you know what? Yeah. I could try to shove this through, you know, they would make, I don't know, billions of dollars. The firm would make millions off of that deal, but it's, it ruins a relationship, which could be right. worth would, tens of billions. Would they be happy? Like, yeah. So. It's like, you can have a fruitful relationship in that way. And not to say it's a, uh, it's a failure because it's very successful financially, but also at the end of the day, would you be happy? And I think that that also made her be like, yeah, we could be married um, and it'd be a nice relationship. But at, after all of that, would we be happy together? So like uh, it, it was a nice parallel that was happening with her and her life. Uh, I really enjoyed it because it, it showed because um, a lot of a lot of those kind of big deals happen in real life. And people don't really uh, p- people, you know, will strike when the, you know, the the society or economic, you know, in the when economy works, um, but not people don't put like all their time and effort into like, oh, should we do this because we want to, or should we do this because financially right now is the best time to do it. So yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, shifting gears, someone that took me by surprise was Jill, which is the mom of Bella. And I'm not Mm -hmm. saying this in any way to like excuse her actions by any regard, but, you know, at the same time, she made the choice early on of like Bella and Danny need to be best friends. And if there's anything I can do as a mom that benefits my child, it is allowing them to stay friends. And she makes that decision. So, you know, terrible mother overall, it seems like. But she right. got that one thing right. Um, and so that that caught me off guard in a pleasant way. Right. And like throughout the, the book and when Bella is going through her whole recovery and her surgery slash recovery slash chemo, all that, you're, you're just wondering, like, where the hell are her parents? I mean, Danny's there every single appointment and meeting and chemotherapy session. But like, where are the parents? So. And especially when the doctor was like, oh, she has a good support system, but she doesn't have her parents. And then every time we see Jill, just like, you are such a negligent mother. I just wanted to slap her. And then when she finally got that moment for like, I just wanted to keep you together. It's like, ah, crap, but I can't hate you either. But you're also a negligent mother. But just because you did one good thing doesn't, you know, make up for all the wrongs that you did to this poor woman who needs you the most right now. Um, so I, w- I was very conflicted when it came to Jill. Yeah, I was too. Um, and certainly it was very telling that, uh, you know, I forget what they call it, but like Bella's whatever, um, primary, not caretaker, but essentially if things yeah, went wrong. Like the emergency contact kind of. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It, it was ultimately Danny, not any of her family members. Right. Um, but, you know, I was okay with that because it just shows just how close Bella and Danny are, that Bella depends more on Danny rather than her own, her own family. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that really helps 
you know, kind of like um, really cement their, their relationship. Were you, did you read it as that even Danny was surprised to sort of learn that? Cause it didn't seem like she knew that ahead of time. Um, I think as a normal person who would be surprised, like, Oh, it should be the parents should being the operative word. But when she heard that, she's like, it took her a moment to realize it, but she was also okay with it because not once did she complain or it, because it made more sense to her because she was at all of her appointments. She was at all of her, her sessions. So Danny, as, as a character in herself, she cared so much about Bella that she took it upon herself to take care of Bella and know her routine and her schedule. So it made sense that Danny was like, yeah, it should be her primary contact. Yeah. And, you know, she really did turn into a superwoman at that point. I mean, even, even with work, right. Going back to the Aldridge subplot, you know, he calls her in for a meeting. She thinks she's going to get fired. Fired. (laughs) She's about to be promoted. And I think it's very interesting in that sense of how little we think of ourselves in certain moments when in reality uh, from you know, everyone else's perspective, you're this Herculean sort of person. Cause not only, as, as we were pointing out, not only is she handling everything in terms of Bella, like she's doing the, all the research, she knows all the lingo and she can ask all the right questions, but without realizing it, she's also able to stay on top of her job. Right. And you, I mean, you have to applaud Danny for doing the research too, because the moment that Bella got the diagnosis she went lawyer and did all the research looked up everything um because i'm glad it was danny because i don't think her parents would have her i mean they, they certainly have, didn't yeah, not only they would not they did didn't not put the effort into learning anything about it and bella being that type a lawyer she she wanted to learn everything about it so she she was more informed and i think uh, i'm glad it was danny yeah certainly um, and it's a weird, like, in a weird way, the, the, the pieces of the puzzle do fit. Like, it's interesting because a lot of times, like, I think you do need that aspect of the dad was just this, like, absentee parent, but he's like, basically, here's a blank check, right? So, again, mm-hmm. not necessarily great, but certainly knowing the U.S. medical industry, not a bad ally, Um, So it's interesting how like all these pieces sort of ultimately do fit together and and help in the larger sense, even though emotionally you would prefer more. Right. And and that's the frustrating things about her parents, Jill and Frederick, is that that just because you pay for everything doesn't make you um, the the parent that she needed. Like she at that moment, she needed emotional support not financial support um and, and that's what was so frustrating about the parents like girl it was like we're, we're reading it as readers and we just want to hold bella's hand and give her a hug but and but that's what the parents should be doing and they had like no interest in doing that and uh just because you sign a, a, a check over doesn't make you a parent yeah um Let's shift gears and talk about Dr. Christine. She doesn't come up a lot, but she is the therapist who listens mm-hmm. to the initial, you know, future story of what will be. And then as soon as it starts getting too close for comfort, um, Danny revisits her again. Um, and it's interesting in, in that way. Like, I think it's, it's also telling how people sometimes only visit their therapist when it's an emergency, quote unquote. Right. Right, because like she hadn't seen the the premonition happened, she automatically saw her therapist, and then it's been years since she saw her therapist again when it was getting closer and closer to the moment where it was actually going to happen. Um, and I think uh, like yes, the therapist didn't really uh, play the biggest part, but she did play her part, like opening up all the questions, like is this a self fulfilling prophecy? Like where are you in your life that you're actually allowing this to happen to you? Um, and I think it was just like a, a checkpoint moment for Danny to be like, oh yeah, this did happen to me. I did just decide to do this, what have you. Um, but I think Danny honestly got more therapy from Bella's doctor than her own therapist. 
Okay, let's let's talk. So, Doctor Shaw, when we're first introduced to him, not ever could I have predicted that he would be a potential love interest by the end of the book. Me so I was neither. So I was even. I just like read him as a doctor. He's not like whatever, but like I didn't pay attention to his physical appearances. Any like, you know, if it was like a movie, any glimpses of into each other's eyes. Was there a momentary <laughs> pause? Like none of that. And maybe it was there, but yeah, this, this was the thing. I'm like, okay. It took me by surprise. Like what, what, what were your thoughts by the end? And there's not a clear indication that they will get together. Right. But, but it's implied that they could. It yeah. definitely implied, but um, yeah, it was a nice surprise to me because when they first meet, it, it's, it's like that moment where you meet someone and they're only there to serve a certain purpose. Like at that point, he was just Bella's doctor. He was the one create, uh, performing the surgery, the one who's like keeping them in the medical know of Bella's sure. condition and whatnot. And we only saw him as doctor. But then once Bella was unfortunately slowly deteriorating and dying, and then Bella did die, um, then he he wasn't really a doctor anymore. They, he wasn't serving that doctor purpose, um, that medical purpose. He was serving, like she finally saw him as a person not as a doctor. So to see him outside of the, his environment, so to speak, and in regular clothes and just as a person, she's like, Oh, right. Okay. (laughs) Um, And I was actually kind of for it. I'm like, yeah, (laughs) yeah. I see, I see this. I'd be okay with this. I'm okay with it. Like, I'd be very like, I, I really want to kind of reread it, at least just those sections to see, you know, that that idea of it. But I will say, if nothing mm-hmm. else, I, I'm just glad it wasn't Greg slash Aaron, because I would have been like, oh, no, this feels very dirty. Like, like I said, they, yeah. they they got it out of their system. And now they're both like off on different adventures. Yeah, well, and every time. Uh, Danny and Aaron met it's like well you could you can read the sexual tension every single time like how physically close they were and like just looking in each other's eyes and lingering and like all those visual cues of like oh yeah something's happening here great build-up great build-up to finally the the release in that sense of I was okay with it quite honestly but if we're going to talk about that chapter her her premonition come to real fruition, <laughs> real, uh, you know, uh, a- actual, um, in-, in that sense, the meaning behind it is what got me. Because when we first read it, we think it's like this intense, pa- passionate moment. But when it actually happens, there's a whole different emotion behind it. And it's actually guilt. And like, oh, it's not fiery, it's not love, it's actual guilt. And it just, it weighed more heavily than it did the first time. Yeah, and I think, you know, certainly that's the strength of the book is that it makes you rethink, like, in general, beyond just the the dream of in five years, but life in general, as she saw it, right? She's looking at it through one set of glasses, even though looking at the same thing, and then when she, let's say, takes off those glasses in terms of the metaphor, she sees a completely different world. Um, and I think that's kind of the message is, you know, we choose to see what we see, you know, um, and we sort of have to get beyond ourselves and whatever else. Right. And I don't think when that first, the premonition first happened to her, she's not really thinking about the meaning behind it. She's thinking about, oh, this is what's going to happen. And then when it does happen, uh, now she she's realizing the actual emotional impact of it, which was so much deeper than what she probably initially thought and what us readers initially thought it was going to be. Yeah, and, it, and it's still interesting, like, you know, because you can call it she felt guilt the first time because she was like dreaming of another man and just steamy hot sex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um when she just got engaged to David. So, you know, so it's interesting you use the word guilt because in a lot of ways, like she felt guilt for just having that dream. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, (laughs) she essentially 
avoids getting married because of all the reasons. And then once Greg comes into her life, it's like, okay, I need a safety net. So I'll marry David because then if I'm married to David, this can't happen. This won't happen. And it's funny how that's like the, the inciting incident for her to like, actually be like, all right, we're getting married in six months. Let's go. Right. I mean, that's, that's the thing that starts it all. Basically that's the MacGuffin in, in that sense. Uh, and I liked it because it we we think it's going to set her on some timeline to avoid the December 15th, which is so funny because that's actually me and my boyfriend's anniversary. Um, that that that's like that's her timetable. Like we have to avoid everything that will happen to lead that leads up to that day. And despite whatever she does, it like and then reading all Bella's stuff that's happening to her leading up to it like ah oh, crap she's she's like slowly like she knows december 15th is looming but she's not really thinking about that day anymore she's thinking about bella and the conditioning and then when it actually happens she's like all right it is today shoot <laughs> what's gonna happen yeah absolutely and and it works out like i mean the fact they are one and the same, right? They're, they're opposites that complete each other, Bella and Danny, because Danny in many ways gave Bella a full life. And then Bella literally left her with a life, meaning the apartment mm-hmm. and, st- you know, the stability. Because, I mean, that was the whole thing. After, after Danny essentially walks out, she doesn't know where the hell her life is going. Like, she has no place to live. <laughs> You know, uh, sure, work is going fine and she'll figure it out, but like, it's still like this big mystery. And so at least she has this like foundation of, I don't know, there there was something like on a symbolic level, just having a place to like call her home Um, because she really did love that place. um, And that's what kind of scared her ultimately. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, that was the gift that Bella gave her. Yeah, and I really enjoy that because it it was painful to read that when Danny first saw that apartment, you could tell she automatically fell in love with it, but she shouldn't because she knew, like, oh, that's Bella's place. That's That was her guilt. Um, she's like, I shouldn't fall in love with this place because my best friend wants this place instead. Um, and then when ultimately it became hers, you, know, you just got to applaud Bella um for knowing her best friend that much like no this place was for you all along you're like ah crap and and that was just another thing you're like ah she's she's like such bella was such a good good best friend to her in that way like knowing all of her wants and needs and that's what a good best friend does especially one who has money (laughs) to give her a place of of safety and security there was that aspect, and I'm kind of curious your perspective on it, the idea, let's call it a spiritual aspect where, um, you know, all the years of, of Danny just being like, Bella, you need to like settle down and be more rigid and structured, where in hindsight, Danny starts to look at it of like, Bella just always knew she didn't have that long to live and she needed to live. Um, and listen, you know, I think ultimately it's that aspect of like, hey, it's a beautiful notion. So why yuck someone's yum in that sense? <laughs> but I'm just curious, like, you know, your thoughts on, on that idea that Bella ultimately, like she was living a life to the fullest. Cause I don't know, call it a sixth sense. There was this intuition that, you know, something would behoove her in a problematic way. Right. And I think that that's the beauty of Bella's character being the person who's like, so go with the flow because I, I feel like, if this ovarian cancer happened to Danny instead, Danny would be like, she would structure her life and overstress herself to the point of how do I fight this? How do I fix everything wrong in my life before I die? And Bella was just like, well, what happens happens. It is what it is. And I think that ultimately helped her character because, because she knew she had such little time. She was like, I'm going to just, fix this or do this for my best friend, do this. Um, and she used her time wisely. She wasn't that overstressed um, that Daniel would have. And I, I think it, not to say that 
Bella was the better person, the better choice for this cancer to happen, because not saying that at all. But I think it was more beneficial that it happened to Bella instead of Danny, because Danny would have approached it completely different than the way Bella did. Indeed. Well, I want to, here's a, so as part of, there's like a reading guide on uh, Rebecca's website, which I'll link to in the description, but uh, I want to I read this. So the question is, Danny and Bella are such distinct characters. Why did you choose to portray them differently, right? And so the answer to that, per the author, Rebecca, I knew that in order to, in order for the conceit to work, Danny would have to be someone with an airtight life plan. She would have to know exactly what she wanted and was building towards. Danny comes by her uptight nature, honestly. She lost her brother when she was young, uh, which we should also talk about, and has had the need to control her life since to make sure she is never stuck down by tragedy again. I also knew I wanted to give her a counterpoint in Bella. Bella does not have any of Danny's rules about life. She is open, creative, impulsive. In many ways, and Danny's journey over the course of the novel is to embrace her own Bella-ness. I think I'm pretty clear. I think I'm a pretty clear mix of the two, but gun to my head, I'd say I'm more like Danny. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So and, go ahead. And I, oh, oh, sorry. And I, I think that's why their relationship works so well because they are so opposite. They balance each other out. Um, I agree. And I think it is an interesting note. Uh, in that uh, about the brother right so she has this brother who passes away tragically it uh, certainly affects her mother and then Danny essentially has to really become an adult fairly quickly Um, and you know that sticks with her and so yeah it's interesting how like tragic moments essentially affect your whole mode of operating um, because it's a direct reaction to it right and also the fact that she lost her brother immediately. That wasn't a slow death. Um, it, it was a tragic accident that happened so quickly and turned her life upside down. And now having Bella's with a slow death, she, she took all the time in the world to like help prevent it, to help slow it down in that way. So like that, that was a long burn for Bella's relationship and, and her death in that sense, because yeah, her brother, she could not control that. But for um, for Bella, she did her best to control it. And still, I mean, part of it is like, as sad as it is, that's part of life. And, um, you know, that is the lesson is uh, you can't control life in that way as much as you would want to. You know, um, it isn't fair, uh, ultimately, that anyone gets any sort of cancer, right, or any sort of disease. Mm-hmm. And we could fight against that, but that's just fighting against nature, you know? Nature. Um, yeah. and so we do the best we can in that sense. Um, I want to, um, again, this, uh, there's like, there's a whole like, um, companion piece to this. And so I figure at random, I I'll just pick like a question or two from the reading discussion. Um, to Danny law is like poetry, but poetry with outcome poetry with concrete meaning with actionable power. This is on page 10. She later describes law by saying that everything uh, is there in black and white. How does law empower Danny? To what extent do you think law shapes how rigidly she sees the world? As the book goes on, power is often taken out of Danny's hands. Do you think her background makes this lack of control harder for her than it might be for others? Uh, That's a good, good question too, because I mean, there's that whole saying knowledge is power. And I think that's, what is the the lawyer um, in Danny is that the more she informs herself and educates herself about anything, the more powerful she feels. Like, and she has that control over whatever it is she's tackling. But since, you know, she can't fight nature and the ways of, of this cancer is overpowering her in that sense, that's where she has to give up her power. And that is what makes her so out of character because, as someone who's constantly in control of that way. And there's always that, that running joke or the line where she's always telling other people, like people are saying I'm controlling, like, yeah, you are controlling. So she's very self-aware of her, her controlling ability. But when she can't control this cancer that's taking her friend, um, that's where she's starting to lose herself because she doesn't recognize herself in that way. 
Yeah, and it's also like if you think about it from a legal perspective, right? You you write a law, a legal document, contract, whatever it is, and it seems as black and white as it can be, and yet it's all in the application and the interpretation of these laws, right? And so, right. in that sense, whatever's written still kind of enters the world, and you lose control of that. That's kind of. That, that, that to me is an interesting part of just law in general as well. Right, and that's also the thing with laws and lawyers are always good about finding loopholes, finding uh, technicalities to, you know, uh, negate whatever the, the original thing was. So I feel like that was where her lawyer and her was like trying to find the thing that will stop this ovarian cancer happening to Bella. She, she was doing her best in her right to like be like, how can we get, get away from this how can we stop this um how can we stop from letting this happen and when she finally got to that point where she can't that's where she loses herself yeah um here's kind of an issue so uh earlier bella gives danny a print um of the the painting that reads i was young i needed the money right what did she how did you interpret um that because like it was a very interesting gift at least in my mind. And I was, I was like trying to look into it um, of like, what, what exactly does this mean? Um, I don't know. I feel like that's like very artist creative kind of reference because there is that, uh, it's not really a painting, but there is that poster out there um, of I was young, I needed the money. But I, I think that's the irony between these two characters that like, again, they didn't need the money. Um, they were so well to do. But when they were younger, maybe it's just they're the one thing that like really helps build their relationship when they were younger is that like, oh, they have this one thing that uh, that constantly you, you know how like best friends when they become best friends, there's that one moment that like really cements the relationship and I, I feel like this this poster or this art piece of artwork is what really, really helped glue these two together for for the rest of their lives and then when she gets that poster near the end of the story like uh yeah they'll, they'll always be best friends yeah I mean part, part of me I guess if there is interpretation for me it's that like uh, I was young and I needed the money is this essence of forgive me for I was young and stupid mm-hmm you know, um, and I think that that to me, if anything, was was the interpretation. But um, any final thoughts before we we wrap this out? Um, um, we should talk about the uh, the HBO Max adaptation as well. Yes, uh, yeah. I'm I'm so happy that they're going to make a movie out of this HBO because, quite honestly, as as a woman who loves the movie beaches i've i got a lot of beaches feel out of this book um not gonna lie beaches in my top 10 favorite movies of all time um so when like spoiler if you've never seen that movie when hillary dies we still have like 10 more minutes of the movie for us to like accept her death feel her death and then like slowly ease out of it and then when i read this book and then bella dies we like we didn't even get 10 pages to to grieve her death and then danny goes and sleeps with her man and then like she feels the guilt and i i kind of had like an emotional grenade because i read i read the this book so fast that it didn't hit me till after i put the book down to like five ten minutes later i was like oh crap and then i texted you i was like no i'm really feeling it now because it, it is such a slow burn that when it happens like you're like oh man it, it it just slowly creeps on on you I don't know for you but for me it, it hit me hard and I didn't feel like I, I felt like the book just ended like Bella's death ended they finally got together and her premonition came true um it meant different but but then the book ended and it did I don't want to say it was unsatisfactory because it did have like a nice ending but uh, it didn't <laughs> like I didn't have enough time to process Bella's death. <laughs> I didn't. And like, it kind of bothered me that I, I got emotional about it. Well, I think, I mean, it's interesting. If anything, it's a juxtaposition. Like when her brother died, um, you know, 
she's been ultimately processing it for years on end. Whereas with Bella's death, though very tragic and sad and she will forever miss her, it was that epiphany of, of, of just all, all the stuff that we've been talking about. And so I don't know, maybe in a sense, like she was able to process the death a lot easier, um, which sounds heinous to say. And yet I think there's something poetic and beautiful about it of like, no, I'm going to essentially it's the acceptance of she's gone, but I'm going to carry her spirit with me. Mm-hmm. And therefore she's never gone. So that's, that's for me why it made it okay. Right. It's just like literally Bella dies on like page 245 and then the book ends at 250. Like we didn't even get 10 pages to process her death. Whereas the Beaches movie, we got at least 10 more minutes. Um, so like, I'm, I'm actually very excited for the movie because I'm going to like ball my eyes out, even though I know what's going to happen. But uh, I'm excited for this to come uh, come to the screen because it's very well written. It's easy, like I said before, three's, three act structure. It's easy to follow. And um, I can't wait until it comes out. I'll just say that. Uh, I look forward to it, too. Um, it'd be fun. All right. Well, this was In Five Years by Rebecca Searle. So uh, if you've been I listening loved, to us. I loved. <laughs> if you haven't. If you uh, haven't read it and you've been listening to us, please go get your copy and read it. Next month, we will be doing Marissa's Choice of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, 100 Years of Solitude. So um, this is a little bit of a thicker book, a little bit of a headier book than in five years. But um, I think uh, people will enjoy it. And And if you're not familiar with Marquez's work, he's mostly known for the Love and Time of Cholera book. If you've ever read that, go read that first and then read this. Indeed. Um, And then after that, we will be reading Salman Rushdie's Midnight Children. You will learn some history of India and Pakistan and, oh boy, world history and culture. Um, So, yes, that's what's on the docket as of right now. Uh, Marissa, plug all the all the stuff. Uh, you can follow me everywhere at Serafini TV. And I'm at Phil Svitek. Thank you for joining us. As always, if you have any recommendations for us that you would like us to check out, comment down below and also let us know your thoughts on In Five Years and check out our past library, pun intended, because hey. it is there. Uh, thank you all so much. We'll see you next time. Bye.